Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's a new week on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and this week I am here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston just returned, and Courtney Astolfi, who will be here for the week because Layla Tassi is now off. You gotta love August and vacation season. It was fun, Laura, with you and the sports editor and the opinion editor all off last week when I returned (laughs) and not being able to talk to any of you. Let's get to it. We learned in early July that children in Cuyahoga County's care were getting sex trafficked, raped, and abused. And over the weekend, reporter Caitlin Durbin filled in some of the details. Courtney, what did her reporting find? Yeah, this was an interesting follow-up to those allegations that DCF workers made publicly in county council in July. You know, they talked about, among other things, youth leaving the facility and becoming, you know, victims of sex trafficking or, you know, getting into other, other issues after they left the building. And what the county basically has described and laid out for Caitlin is that they don't really have an ability to stop kids from coming and going. They're currently being housed at the Jane Edna building east of downtown Cleveland. And the county says that they're essentially like powerless in in a lot of cases to stop kids from leaving that building on their own, which is where a lot of these problems are starting. And Caitlin found Cleveland police reports documenting at least 135 different times in the first half of the year of kids running away from the building. DCF DCF staff have to file a report whenever that happens, even though it's pretty commonplace. Sometimes the kids come back, sometimes they don't. One report particularly troubling that Caitlin found was how an 11-year-old girl, she was waiting for placement in a foster home or other care setting. She left the building with two other kids thinking they were going to go hang out somewhere, and one of them, she said, raped her. So that's kind of an illustration of the issues that can arise from this this policy that doesn't let the county stop workers. But there are potentially other issues there. And Caitlin talked to the state, the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services, which kind of governs in some degree county local programs. And, and they said local agencies are unable to detain or prevent kids from leaving. But there was some lack of clarity there on what specific rules and laws feed into that policy that that make it be that case. What's amazing is that these allegations came out the first week of July, and here we are mid-August, and they've done nothing really to make this better. And I started to wonder, is this a case where, because the laws are so vague and unclear, nobody knows what's going on, they should just break them? And I'm old, so I'm the only one that's going to remember this. 25 years ago, When Tim McCormick was first elected a Cuyahoga County commissioner, he was seeing death reports on children that were confidential that showed county deficiencies. They weren't in the care of Children and Family Services, but Children and Family Services had been in touch with them and not protected them. And he was outraged by it. So he started releasing these confidential death reports to the media. 
His other fellow commissioners, Jane Campbell and Tim Hagen, tried to get him arrested or charged. They referred the thing to a prosecutor to try and stop him. They tried to block him from getting the death reports. But he's he's like, I'm going to break the law because we've got to save the children. And he made a big stink about it. And ultimately, it forced them all to come up with policies that would protect the kids. He he didn't care about the law. He cared about protecting the kids. Now, if you're a social worker sitting in the Jane and the Hunter building and you see a sex trafficking person take an 11 year old out of the building, don't you think that you'd say the hell with the law? I'm going to protect the 11 year old. I don't get how this is continuing. Children are suffering and it's nobody's doing anything. I mean, the county council keeps talking about putting millions of dollars into the medical mart, right? And they're not fixing this. I don't think there's been one hearing about this since it first came up, has there? You know, Caitlin didn't describe anything like that, so I assume no, there hasn't. She she did talk to some workers, you know, off the record who weren't at liberty to speak to her on the record. And, and they said there have been these little piecemeal quiet changes that have been started to be implemented since they went public last month. Um, But according to the staffers, none of those little changes have made a difference. For example, there's now a full-time sheriff's deputy that's on scene to help protect, you know, any attacks or assaults from going on there. You know, there's also been... They've they've expanded their list of providers to hopefully relieve some of the need to keep as many kids in their office building as there have been. So there's little things here and there, but we've yet to see like a big permanent fix. I I know that there were plans to to create a facility at some point in the last year or so to give them a safer place to stay. But I don't think we've seen progress on that yet. And didn't they say that some of the things put into place actually made it the supervisors even more removed from the problem. I mean, they're saying that frontline workers are the ones dealing with this and the supervisors in their offices don't want to see it happening, which is incredibly sad. I mean, I was really just struck by all of the facts that Caitlin Durbin reported in this. I was reading it in the airport yesterday, just jaw dropping and saying, you know, Armin Budish said, spend anything you can to fix this problem. And they can't find any providers that will take some of these kids. I mean, but this is a five alarm fire. This is absolutely every county resource should be aimed at saving the kids. I mean, if you can't protect kids, what's the use of having the government to begin with? And there's just no five alarm fire. This is the legacy of Armin Budish. First, it was the jail. Now it's this. Where is the crisis? Where's Pernell Jones, the council president? Why isn't he pounding the table saying we've got to fix this instead of playing with slush funds and dumping money into the medical mart? The the priorities here just seem completely out of whack to me. Lisa, were you going to say something? No, it just seems that these are the kids that are stuck between the foster care system and the criminal justice system. I mean, the article even said that they, you know, a lot of these providers have the right to refuse these kids, and some of them have. So we really need kind of a specialized, uh, you know, facility for this. But the only way you get that is to treat it like a priority, to have county council meetings where you talk about what the solution will be. And we're not seeing that. We're seeing, let's throw money at it. If we can find people to take them, 
where is the the crisis treatment? I mean, an 11 year old kid was raped. Isn't that enough to spark these guys into action? It's a it was the most outrageous story I've read in months. Caitlin did a great job putting it together. But the inaction for basically six weeks is really striking. And the county's only response basically was saying, well, the 11 year old wasn't raped in our building. I know. Remember that? I know. We're like, like what? Uh, oh, okay. Well, that makes it okay then. She was out of your control when she was raped. It's just preposterous how this is going. We're going to keep digging. We're going to look and see do these buildings exist in any other counties? What are they doing? And there, there just has to be a solution here. And if the county isn't going to find it, we're going to have to start looking for some to suggest. Read Caitlin's story. It's on Cleveland.com, and it is today in Ohio. How is Democrat Tim Ryan working to win over right-of-center voters as he takes on hardline Donald Trump supporter in the Ohio race for the U.S. Senate? Lisa, another good story we had over the weekend by Andrew Tobias. Yeah, and Tim Ryan has been a presence in, you know, on television ads throughout the summer, whereas J.D. Vance is just barely, you know, starting to advertise. But yeah, Tim Ryan has been focusing on, you know, center-right voters in his campaign and his TV ads. He spent about a million dollars so far. Um, he's trying to shore up Democratic losses in rural areas. He's working in Democratic areas that were flipped by Trump in northern and eastern Ohio. And his focus focuses on the working man. You know, he, he doesn't wear a tie. He's, you know, hanging with construction workers and stuff. So he's trying to get those, you know, blue collar bona fides. And he's focusing on bettering people's lives. Um, internal polling by Ryan's campaign and the Republicans shows that he has a narrow lead. But Republicans think that that will change when Vance starts his $5 million ad campaign and get a boost from Ron DeSantis appearing at an event for Vance in Youngstown this Friday. They're going to try and paint Ryan as a liberal Democrat, but I don't know if they're going to be real successful with that. But Vance's hard right stance may push suburban pro-choice women and Eastern European descent voters that are mad about Vance's stance on Ukraine over to Ryan's side. So we'll have to see. But Ryan is definitely trying to claim the center here. Yeah, look, Vance has opened up the center because he's as far to the right. I mean, he's the election denier, all the conspiracy nonsense. Plus, he hasn't been here. I mean, he won the primary. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to spend time in Ohio. So when his campaign finally starts, it might be too late. Ryan has been very effectively courting the middle. And look, the other thing I, I think will play, and you're seeing a lot of fear about this in Republicans across the land, is the abortion ruling. That's going to weigh in on this election like like nothing before. And so Ryan has the chance to flip a seat. It's a fascinating play where, remember, we talked about this before. He didn't appear with Joe Biden when Joe Biden came right. to Cleveland because he's trying to be in the center, not to the um, to the far far left. Good stuff. It's today in Ohio. How is the victim of a racially motivated beating making a novel use of ethnic intimidation laws to seek the justice he believes he was denied in the criminal courts? Laura? This is another real jaw-dropping story from the weekend by Adam Faris. And it's about a young black college student named Malik Williams. He went to a graduation party last June with his girlfriend and was suddenly attacked by a stranger, punched in the head, repeatedly punched and kicked while he was on the ground while another party guest shouted the N-word. And so this attacker pleaded guilty to Ohio's hate crime law, got a total of three days in jail, and he felt 
and his mother felt, um, Malik Williams and his mother felt that the criminal justice system didn't didn't do enough here. So they are filing this, or they did file a unique lawsuit in federal court accusing the attacker um, of and, their, and his father, basically, of violating their right to be free from racially motivated violence. So, it, yeah, this is just one of those ones you read the details and I can get into them and you're just like, what is wrong with people? What I love about the way he's doing this, he was very peaceful when he was stomped and kicked. Mm -hmm. He didn't fight back because he knew that that probably would have made it worse. He counted on the justice system to do the right thing. And it really didn't. The the, the guy, wouldn't the guy get like three days or something? So so he's bringing this back. It's like, I'll seek justice on my own. And clearly he was the victim of a racial attack. And you just wonder what, what happened in the court system here? Why didn't the court system bring a greater sense of justice? Well, so the hate crime statute in Ohio is called ethnic intimidation. It's a fifth degree felony. It's punishable by a maximum of 18 months in prison, but it comes with the presumption of probation. And this law makes it illegal for anyone to threaten, harass, attack, or damage property because of a victim's race, color, religion, or nationality. So Adam looked at 28 ethnic intimidation cases brought by county prosecutors from 2016 through 20. 21 few brought substantial prison time so the attorneys say that these kind of lawsuits are an alternative path for victims who who do feel shortchanged by this system because let me just get into this a little bit malik was the only black person at this party he had played soccer in middle school been a longtime parma resident basketball football at valley forge high school so he went to this party at St. Seva Serbian Orthodox Church's Picnic Grove in Parma. And apparently the 21-year-old brother of the graduate, his name is Constantinos Kefataris, he first approached him. He groped his girlfriend, slipped $3 in her pocket purposely to elicit an angry response. This is all coming from court documents. Then he sucker punched him. And then his dad ran up and put Malik in a chokehold and while on the ground, punched him and kicked him and yelled at him. And party goers substantiated this. They say this came out of nowhere and it was definitely racially motivated. And they ended up pleading guilty to this. So, I mean, there's no question that they did it. Uh, the, Although they have a different, they say that that, that the, what happened wasn't right, but they pleaded guilty to it. The, the sad thing is, is that Parma has done a lot over the last 20 years to try and overcome its longstanding history of racism. They were in trouble with the federal government for years. And the fact that this happens in Parma just brings back mm-hmm. all of those ugly, ugly memories and has people talking about, oh, same old Parma. Uh, again, that's why it's so striking that the courts didn't land on these guys harder. I mean, so you got three days in jail. Five years on probation, a thousand dollar fine, 150 hours of community service, and attend a behavioral class in a program called Thinking for a Change. So, I, I mean, this is not, it's not like he just walked away with probation. He did get something because um, he pleaded guilty to attempted ethnic imitation and assault. These are both first degree misdemeanors, not felonies. But um, they say they took the plea deal on the advice of their attorney and that they, they don't agree with the charges. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you look at Parma and you look at the last election, presidential election, and I believe it went more Republican than we had expected. Um, and you just wonder what is going on in Parma, because you're right. I, I hear of young people moving there and it's becoming more. It's got a whole turnover of population. I mean, it's a, a fairly big city. What is it like 80,000 people? So for this to happen, I mean, they he was charged at least with 
ethnic intimidation, but they did say that the Parma police at the the beginning of the investigation kept saying, are you sure you didn't start this fight? Which left Malik and his family with a really, you know, uneasy feeling. They've moved out of Parma and uh, Malik went to counseling. He struggles talking about it, and but he did change. He's going to Ohio University. He wants to change his major to criminal justice and become an FBI agent. So, I mean, okay. hats off to this young man. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How do Democrats and Republicans across the nation, including those in Ohio, plan to use Joe Biden's anti-inflation, anti-climate change bill as part of their fall campaigns? Courtney. Yeah, kind of no surprise that this is going to be in the dialogue here as, as campaign season continues. The Inflation Reduction Act passed the House of Representatives on Friday. It's a $700 billion bill uh, to provide lower prescription costs, Affordable Care Act subsidies, it imposes, you know, a tax on corporate stock buybacks, has other tax requirements there for, for large companies. And then there's a various, you know, amount of subsidies for solar panels, wind energy, those kinds of clean energies um, initiatives. And, and as expected, Republicans kind of out the gate are using this as a campaign issue. But President Biden is doing that, too. So he's going to dispatch his cabinet secretaries throughout the country to kind of pound the pavement and tout the benefits of this bill. Meanwhile, we've got, you know, big GOP Ohio name, uh, Jim Jordan. He went on Fox News and he said this bill is going to increase taxes, worsen and cause inflation, and that an IRS portion of the funding in the bill would raise taxes on middle America. He said... Yeah. Go ahead. No, Jordan just said, I mean, explicitly... The way you send a message around this bill is 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 through the ballot box and voters will speak up and, and put Republicans back in power. Go ahead. But pretty much every analysis I've seen has shown this is a good bill. It's good for taxpayers. It's good for the climate, that this was a major win for Biden and the Democrats. And the Republican spin on it is pretty much false. But that's what we've seen for the past five, six years. There's a lot of false spin by Republicans on things. The spin by Fox News on the search warrant at Trump's Florida compound was unbelievable. Uh, I, I think the Democrats actually have something with this. This is something that when they champion it, it's going to resonate with middle of the road voters, not the far right fringe that Jordan is talking to. But overall, this this I think will this and abortion are going to be key elements of the campaign. Yeah. And um, Democratic Senate rep um, Tim Ryan, who's running for U.S. Senate, excuse me, he's out there making the argument you are. We've seen him uh, appeal to kind of middle of the road voters and, and try and carve out a path that way in Ohio. And he basically said he called he said the exhausted majority of the people in this country, Democrats, Republicans, independents versus extremists, that, that's who, who this is good for. This is good for every man. It'll help seniors. It'll increase the production of natural gas. And he's playing this as that right down the middle appeal. All right. It's today in Ohio. With students in many districts heading into the classrooms this week, it's back to school time. And we have multiple school-related stories to talk about. I hope we get to them all. First up is a disturbing result of the politicization of the coronavirus, making those classrooms potentially more dangerous. Lisa, we're talking about vaccines. What's the bad news for Ohio? According to the Centers for Disease Control, vaccination rates for all diseases are down among kindergartners starting school in Ohio. 
by at least four percentage points, and we're way behind the national average on all of these vaccinations. So let's look at chickenpox. Um, the uh, rate in Ohio was 88.7% in the 2020-2021 school year. That's down from 91.9% the previous year. So it went down a couple of percentage points, but the, the national average is 93%. Polio, this is a disease, a New York adult polio case was just reported in an unvaccinated adult recently. So polio, a disease we thought we had eradicated, may be coming back. In Ohio, the vaccination rate for polio is 89.4%. That's four percentage points down from the U.S. average and down from uh, 91.9% in Ohio just the previous year. Same thing for measles, mumps, and rubella. Hepatitis B is about the only one that cha- that didn't change. There was only a slight decrease between school years from 94.1% from 94.9% the previous year. So yeah, this is not looking good. Um, at, at data has shown that states that lean blue or Democratic have higher vaccination rates. Ohio Department of Health Director Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff says that fear, skepticism, and misinformation about the COVID vaccination played a big role in other vaccination rates. He also said during the pandemic, a lot of kids missed their wellness exams where they might have gotten a vaccination. And he said any unvaccinated child for any disease is very vulnerable. It's such a frightening thing to think that we could have polio on the run again because of all of the the nonsense that's been out there about vaccines. I just that that was terrible. And Lisa, you you remember people from your youth that got this. There were there were adults in my neighborhood that had been had been permanently disfigured by polio and we all got we all got we beat it you know the, the society came up with the science and and nobody had to get it ever again and like you said we have a case now in New York yeah i remember lining up in school they did it at school they put it on a sugar cube and and the kids ate the sugar cube so yeah, it, it's and you know there's the measles. There was a confirmed Ohio case of measles in a child. So diseases we thought we'd you know uh, gotten rid of are coming back again, and this is the result of not having herd immunity. Yeah, it's very sad. It's today in Ohio. Next up on the school front, we know that nationwide we have a teacher shortage, but do we have one in Ohio and Greater Cleveland, Laura? We do. It might not be as quite as bad as elsewhere, but take Cleveland Metropolitan School District. So they're 95% full for the start of the school year, but that's 150 teaching positions it has open. So 100 better than it did in June, but that means that they could be starting school with bigger classes, less personal attention, and missing instruction for arts, music, and physical education, especially for the blocks of classes before and after the start of the school day, which they added after COVID, which, you know, is, is keeping kids in school, giving them extra attention. So they've hired 340 people just since May. They're continuing to actually actively recruit. Same kind of thing is happening in districts across Northeast Ohio. They need to find teachers. Even in districts that don't need the teachers, they do need the bus drivers and they do need yeah. the aides. Uh, and that, that last year, though, one of the hardest things was finding substitute teachers so it's that's, I think, pretty much everywhere, right? 
Absolutely. Bus drivers, you've seen the signs everywhere, you know, they're recruiting bus drivers. And one of the reasons is because bus driving is a, is a split shift day. You're going to work in the morning and you're going to work in the afternoon. And you have to deal with unruly kids and COVID maybe that they're coming onto the bus with. And they can find much better jobs, maybe driving for Amazon or something where they don't have to deal with these kind of issues. Uh, and some of the stuff with the teachers, we've talked about this over and over again, but you know, they've been the butt of, of so much controversy in the last couple of years with COVID policies, with guns, with CRT in the classroom. Like Even though it's not part of the curriculum, they've been in this political maelstrom and maybe they don't want to do that anymore. So uh, plus the, you know, New teachers started about $49,000 a year salary in Cleveland. They might be able to make better money elsewhere. Think about the shortage of everything right now and how everybody's competing to hire people. They do love working with the kids, though. I think that's what keeps driving them back. My wife is a teacher, and she will see her students come Wednesday and was talking this weekend about how excited she is to see them again. I got to tell you, my kids just found out, well, they're, they're guessing who their teachers are for the year. You know, they're logging into their school accounts and they're just like so excited talking about what great teachers these are and, and how much they can't wait. And, you know, they'll say they don't want to go back to school, but these <laughs> teachers make a huge impression right. on the kids. And I can't say enough good things about them. It's today in Ohio. Last on the school, are any districts in Northeast Ohio allowing their teachers to carry guns in the classroom? Something made much easier by a recently passed state law. Courtney, not really a thing in Northeast Ohio. Yeah, the big districts that reporter Kaylee Remington spoke with up here said, said nope, we are not exercising this option state. No, thank you. Um, those tool- schools include Cleveland, Akron, Medina, Shaker Heights, Lakewood and Cleveland Heights University Heights schools. It's not everything, but those are those are some big districts here, and and they are not in board on board with adding this extra, you know, kind of life or death responsibility to teachers' plates. You know, we we've seen districts elsewhere, probably in more rural places in Ohio, be interested in this policy, but up here in the urban area, not so much. The Ohio Education Association is is the state's largest union representing teachers and and the, and other personnel and you know it's fought this new law so that's that's somewhat of an indication of where teachers stand potentially majority statewide they're against it but like we said we're we are seeing this in rural places but you did pick on the main thing in rural areas it takes a lot longer for police to respond to a school and so they there's a feeling that in rural areas this would make more sense in largely urban Northeast Ohio, police could be on the scene almost immediately. And so why have teachers carry guns and increase the danger of the classroom? It's today in Ohio. Why is Ohio Congressman Mike Turner raising some hell about the Justice Department raid of Donald Trump's Florida compound? Lisa, he was on one of the TV shows over the weekend and got caught up short by an interviewer's question. But let's start with what his position is. Yeah, U.S. Representative Mike Turner, who's a Republican from Dayton, he's the ranking Republican on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. So he had a press conference last Friday with other GOP members of that committee, and they're demanding info from the Department of Justice about the search of Mar-a-Lago, despite details released Friday about the nature of some of those documents seized. Eleven document sets were marked as classified, top secret, or sensitive compartmented info that should have never 
never left the White House. Um, he Turner predicted that there will still be some unanswered questions after the release. I don't know what he's saying now because so much has happened in the next, last couple of days. He did appear on CNN's State of the Union over the weekend, and this is a whole lot of pretzel logic that's being employed right here. You know, he was saying, what was the national security issue that prompted the warrant and what was an immediate threat from those documents? They could have taken other options other than, you know, a search warrant. He wants to talk to FBI Director Christopher Wray about a possible Mar-a-Lago informant. He also wants to know about the nukes classified info. He says some nuclear classified information is more sensitive than others. And I would I would dispute that. Um, he fully supports, though, this is the funny thing, he fully supports the FBI and the DOJ to keep the USA safe and condemn violence, such as the attack at the Cincinnati FBI field office. But he wants to make sure that leadership isn't politicizing law enforcement. So this just kind of reeks of desperation. Well, it was I read an analysis of the way the different networks covered this, and and most of the networks were very much we need to wait and see what what they got. We need to see what the evidence is. But Fox and some of the real far right ones were just throwing f- flame on uh, you know gas on the flame, arguing that the FBI is out of control and we're headed down the Gestapo, all sorts of stuff, and they have no idea what was there. I mean, the FBI went to a judge, got a warrant because they believed that was dangerous information that could fall into the wrong hands. And they carted a bunch of stuff out of there. So we don't know. But you have people like Mike Turner throwing all sorts of doubt on what the FBI did while claiming he supports the FBI. He doesn't support the FBI. He's attacking what they did. Right, right. And, you know, for a federal judge to sign off on a search warrant, there's got to be a whole lot of probable cause to know that there are certain things there that they were looking for. So, yeah, and then Trump is even kind of tripping over his own lies. You know, he first said, oh, one of his lawyers said, oh, there are no more classified documents left after the first 15 boxes were taken away a few months ago. But then these... You know, ones they seized last week had classified documents in them. So, yeah, this is pretty crazy. And Donald Trump appointed the current FBI director. So while they're arguing the FBI is out to get him, it's his guy that runs the place. So I, you, the whole the whole logic of the right on this trying to spin is out of control. And you just hope for a day where there's some accountability for that kind of crazy talk. It's Today in Ohio. That wraps up a Monday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. 